This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to John 1. John 1, as you're turning there, there are a couple of Latin phrases that might be fun to learn as we head into the Christmas season. You can trot them out at your next Christmas party you happen to be at. Bonum utile and bonum formosum. Okay, it's Latin. Bonum utile and bonum formosum. Bonum utile means a profitable good to me. Bonum utile, a profitable good to me. Bonum formosum means a beautiful good in itself. Now, if you want to conduct a fun little experiment on bonum utile or bonum formosum, here's what you do. You go up to someone you believe loves you. Make sure you get that right, because if you don't, this whole thing goes sideways. (laughs) And you say to them, why do you love me? can hear the creature from Star Wars saying, it's a trap. (laughs) It's a trap. Just listen to the answer to the question. Earlier in our marriage, this was a serious question, but now that I have figured out how to play the game, it's become sort of a fun thing. Here's what I mean. If you find out your loved one loves you because of your money, your looks, your common hobbies, but does not love you for who you are in and of yourself. You are a bonum utile, a profitable good to me. They love you because of what they can get out of you. But if you find out that you are loved simply because of who you are as a person, you are a bonum formosum, a beautiful good in itself. Often our interest in Jesus is just bonum utile. How can Jesus be useful to me? And we need to be honest, there are large chunks of the evangelical world where the only use we have for Jesus is a get-out-of-hell-free card. But if that's the extent of your interest in Jesus, you're treating him as a bonum utile, not a bonum formosum. You've married him for his money, not for who he is as a person. So in many ways, this Sunday and the next is a test. Is Jesus just bonum utile, or is he bonum formosum? So prepare us for Christmas. We're going to be looking at two high Christology passages of Scripture. Today, John 1. Next Sunday, Pastor Duane will take us through Hebrews 1. Two fantastic chapters to set our minds and our hearts right as we celebrate Christmas. I want to begin looking at John 1. We're going to do a little bit of Bible study before we go into the so what. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, when you hear the phrase in the beginning class, what do you think of? Genesis. No question, John is hearkening back to that. In many ways, John, the Gospel of John, is the Genesis of the New Testament. 
In the beginning, God, in Genesis 1, created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God was already there. Before the creation existed, God already existed. The same is true of the Word. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning what? The Word was already there. So the emphasis on the first phrase of this is the pre-existence of the Word, the eternality of the Word. And John goes on to say, and the word was with God. Now, this word with may appear to be flyover country, but it's not. The fact that the word is with God doesn't merely express coexistence, but active relationship. So whatever the word is, and we'll get to that momentarily, the word is eternal, 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 and distinguishable from God, but in active relationship with God. Next phrase, and the word was God. So we have three phrases in this first verse, and the final phrase emphasizes the godness of the word. The word possesses pre-existence. The word is eternal. The word is in active relationship with God, but distinguishable from him. But the word is also God, not similar to, but actually God. Now, the very first word of verse 2 is striking. It's he. <laughs> So John now identifies the word as a he. So this word is no mere personification of God, but a person who has existed from all eternity in active relationship with God. Very quickly, skip down to verse 14. Just glance at it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. All right. So now we come face to face with the word. The word is God incarnate. Jesus Christ. When the universe came to be, the Son of God was already there, active in creation. Before there was a creation, the Son of God was with the Father in active relationship. But the Son of God is not an inferior being. He is God. Now, why would John choose to use the word word to talk about the Son of God this way? Well, if we stay with Genesis 1, which is where John begins, God's word, God's speech in Genesis 1 is creational. John is saying a new creation is about to dawn. But it's also worth noticing that in Genesis 1, God just speaks and things happen. He speaks and alters reality. He speaks and alters reality in such a way that the reality he creates both reflects and underscores what he's like. The human analogy is helpful. Your speech is an expression of your thoughts. And thoughts expressed say something about you, the person. So if you're around someone who is undisciplined with the tongue, you might say, well, he's certainly a colorful character. Speech is tied to thoughts. Thoughts are tied to the person. Jesus is the word. Jesus is God's ultimate expression of his thoughts. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate self-disclosure. Jesus, as the expression of God, says a lot, reveals about, about God the Father. Look at verses 2 and 3. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. 
So verse 3 begins to discuss Jesus' divine works beginning with creation. Notice what it says. Anything that's been made owes its existence to the word. Jesus was instrumental in creation. Anything made came into being by and through the word made flesh, Jesus. Which means Jesus cannot fit within the category of made. He's not made. Therefore, he's unmade. Therefore, he is infinite. This is a brief aside. I want to show you how to use the back of a napkin to prove to a Jehovah's Witness that Jesus is God. This is Greg Kolkel's doing. There's a picture of it on the on the screens. Here's what here's what you have to look at. You got that big rectangle and got divided into two squarish looking things. The big rectangle is everything that exists. And of course, you can take everything that exists and divide it neatly into two categories: all things that never came into being. And all things that came into being. There is no third category. Obviously, all things that never came into being, God belongs there. In the right square, in the right square you've got all created things. And Greg says, all these things were created through Jesus. Therefore, <laughs> Jesus is not made because he cannot make himself. He's made everything, and everything that has been made has been made by him. Therefore, he cannot have been created. He never had a beginning. He's not just similar to God, but is actually God. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John, throughout his gospel and his three letters, likes to use the imagery of life and light. And he links them together. It's helpful. I mean, if you think about you know, what would happen to life on earth if all light ceased to exist, we lived in absolute darkness. We can't live without it. So here in John 1, John says that life is in the word. It's the only source of it. He's a source of life, both physical and spiritual. Only those who have come to Jesus for life have the ability to walk in light. That is, in order for human beings to live lives of righteousness, in accordance with the will of God, they have to first come to the source of life. The word of God incarnate. Skip down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So you have the preexistent, eternal, fully God, but distinguishable from God, creator became flesh. You got all that? <laughs> then you have this phrase, made his dwelling among us. Literally, it's tabernacled among us. We looked at this Hammered this, Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, High Priest. Tabernacle became associated with the presence of God. God manifested his presence in and through the tabernacle. And John is saying, you remember what a big deal that was for the high priest to be able to enter the most holy place in the tabernacle? One day a year, only him, following meticulous instructions. And everybody waited with bated breath to wonder whether or not he'd come out alive. 
And if anybody entered, anybody else entered, what happened? Dead. It's a big deal. There's a reverence for this thing. And John says that most holy place has come to live among us. It's no wonder some of the reactions people had to Jesus were to bow the knee and say, depart from me. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. It is grace simply for Jesus to walk among us. We think of grace as what Jesus did on the cross for us. Before we even get there, we have got to acknowledge the extraordinary act of grace it is that God in the flesh walks among us. That should be enough to fuel many minutes of worship, but I'm going to ask and answer in the time we have left one question. It's Christmas, the time of year we celebrate the incarnation. God becomes flesh. But here's the question. Why did Jesus have to be fully God and fully man? Why did he have to be both? Let me mention three reasons. Number one, to reveal the Father to us. John 1 1 and 1 14, the Word was God, the Word became flesh. And a little later, as John's gospel unfolds, Jesus gives even more detail to that in 14.9. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. (laughs) The Word incarnate, the Son of God incarnate, is the exegete of the invisible God. He's the proper revealer of God. If Jesus isn't both fully God and fully man, this does not happen. Just briefly, meditate with me on the significance of Jesus revealing the Father. It's a little deep, but it's worth it. Take another sip of coffee. Quick, another sip of coffee. The very nature of God means he transcends culture. Because he is the creator, he existed before the universe, and therefore... He existed before there was what we call culture. So not only does God transcend space and time, he also transcends culture. One of the things this means then is that God's native language is not English. Some of you are shocked to hear that. God's native language is not English. It's not even Hebrew or Greek. What language does the tripersonal God speak within himself? Before the world began, what language did the Father use to communicate his affection for his Son? Before the world began, what language did the Son use to express his affection for the Father? It's not English. It's not Greek. It's not Hebrew. What language was it? Well, the very nature of it would suggest a transcultural language. One we don't and likely can't understand. If we were to overhear the father speaking to the son in their native tongue, we would not know what it is they're saying to each other. You ever tried communicating with someone whose language you don't speak? Think about missionaries who spend years 
years learning the language of the people group they're going to go minister to. Maybe you've known some of them. Undoubtedly, you've heard the stories of frustration and exasperation as the adult mind tries to work on a language they've never even understood before, never looked at before, never knew existed. When they show up on the soil of the people they're trying to reach, looking the way they do, likely very different. When they speak the language of the native people, how does that hit the people? Shock? Surprise? I remember going on a missions trip to Peru some years ago. There was only one person in the group who knew Spanish. Nobody else did. And I think the assumption from the church that we were working with in Peru is that all these white people coming to see us, none of them are going to speak our language. But when the guy on our team started speaking in Spanish, the whole crowd flocked to him. Oh, shock, surprise, you know our tongue. You know our tongue. Instantaneously, there was a relationship established. For the rest of us, it took some work. (laughs) It took some work. The fact that we have scripture in a human language that can be understood says something about God. He wants you to know him. He wants to communicate with you. He wants to tell you about himself. He wants a relationship with you. The fact that we have God's revelation of himself in a language we understand tells us something about him. He wants you to access him. Now, the fact that we have God in flesh takes that up another notch. God so desires for you to know him, he comes in the form of the most intelligible human communication possible. A human being. A human being. Speaking our culture-bound language. This speaks to the enormity of God's love for the human race and the price to be paid by those who reject it. See, if Jesus was not fully human, I'm not sure his revelation of God would have been understandable. If Jesus wasn't fully God, his revelation wouldn't be of God. In order to truly reveal the Father to us, he had to be the Son of God incarnate, God in flesh. Now think about this. Have you ever met someone who knows someone famous? You ever met someone who knows someone famous? Let's say you meet someone who knows Elvis. I don't know why that example came up, but (laughs) let's say you met someone who knew Elvis, right? You're having lunch. Suddenly they spring this little bit of trivia on you. Hey, guess what? I knew Elvis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We grew up next door to each other. Okay. What's one of the first questions you're going to ask that person? What was he like? Tell me about Elvis. Tell me about Elvis. Everybody's attracted to greatness. That's why we name drop, by the way. We want to brush up against greatness and let everybody know we have. 
in asking that individual what Elvis was like, you're attempting to draw closer to greatness. Jesus did much more. He not only knew God, he was God. The very image of the eternal God. If you want to brush up against greatness par excellence, brush up against Jesus. You know Elvis, big deal. For when you brush up against Jesus, you brush up against God himself. Second, why fully God, fully man? First, reveal God to us, reveal the Father to us. If you want to know what God is like, study Jesus. Second, to redeem us. To redeem us. Galatians chapter 4, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Paul says God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Interesting that Paul would draw attention to that, born of a woman. Why specifically highlight Jesus' humanity? We'll keep reading. Paul says born under the law. So not only is he a human being, he's also a Jewish man living under the requirements of the law. For what purpose? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as Son, so throughout his life, Jesus submitted to all the requirements of the law. He succeeded where all others before and since have failed. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law. This is representative obedience. Core to the gospel is this reality that Jesus lived the perfect life you could never live. Core to the gospel, the message of Christianity is that Jesus lived the perfect life you could never live. He succeeded where Adam failed. He succeeded where Israel failed. He succeeded where we failed. And then Paul in Romans 5 says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So the son of God had to become a human being so his righteous life could satisfy God's righteous requirement. The son of God had to remain God because only God was capable of that. Hebrews 2 now takes this farther To say that the Son of God had to become human in order to die and pay the penalty for sin. The Son of God had to be God because only the death of God could pay. The debt that was owed was too great for a mere mortal to pay. Now, this is a fun factoid, but I pray that this drives you to worship. John Flavel, writing in the 1600s, put it this way. He says, if two persons be at variance, and the superior, who also is the wronged person, begin to stoop first and say, you have deeply wronged me. Your blood is not able to repair the wrongs you have done me. However, such is my love to you and willingness to be at peace with you that I will part with what is most dear to me in all the world, for peace's sake. The Father so willed your salvation 
that he was content to degrade the darling of his soul, his son, to a vile and contemptible state. Adoration is an appropriate response. Third, why why the why the God man? Why fully God? Why fully man? To model the ideal human being. To model the ideal human being. Let me start with a for instance. Uh, who decides the objective of the game of volleyball? Well, that right goes to one William G. Morgan, who invented the sport in 1895. Though some of the rules have been refined over the years, the objective has remained the same. Ground the ball within the lines on the opponent's side of the net and keep the ball airborne on your own side of the net. Okay? Now, if a player doesn't agree with Morgan's rules and prefers instead to juggle the ball and send it into the net while dancing a tango, that person is not playing volleyball. His or her idea of the game isn't just different, it's objectively wrong. Now, if we remove the person who invented the game of volleyball and all its rules, we are left with a bunch of players in their team uniforms standing around on the court. They have a ball, they've got a net, but no true purpose, no goal or objective is more valid than any other. If two players disagree on the objective of the game, one cannot claim to be more right than the other because neither player understands the purpose of the game as designed by the game's creator. Every player is free to choose a personal objective, but those are not the true objectives of the game. Even if two teams agree on a goal for the game, it would still be a subjective goal belonging to them alone and would be no more valid than any other contrary objective that two teams, two other teams might agree upon. Anyone is free to devise a game with a ball and a net to make up rules, but it wouldn't be volleyball because that game has already been created and already has rules and a fixed objective and, and as defined by the creator. One of the things Jesus did in becoming flesh to live as a human being is say to us, you're playing the game wrong. Get out of my way. Let me show you how this is done. Y'all look ridiculous trying to play this game. So watch me. So watch me. And I'll show you how to do it properly. I'll show you how to live a proper human life. One of the best passages that encapsulates this is Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. This passage brings the incarnation of the son of God to the fore and it applies it to Christian behavior. Paul articulates the journey of Christ on our behalf from eternity into time back into eternity. 
And it rehearses for us the fact that Jesus is the eternal son of God who has always existed and shows us Jesus enters into space and time as the son of God incarnate and then is glorified. But Paul's point is a pastoral one. There are problems in this church. He didn't write that section of text for no reason. In fact, the setup for it is in verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. See, there was conflict in this church. And Paul is saying to them, you're not playing the game right. It's not how it's done. So let me remind you how it's done. Jesus, we start there. He lives the ideal human life. He shows you the proper way to do life. And he goes on in verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather than humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So Paul uses Jesus' gracious condescension, his great humility, both in his incarnation and his death, to show us we as believers are to be like minded with Christ. That is, humble, other person centered, self sacrificing. Jesus needed to be fully human if he was to model for us true humanity. So in a sense, when Jesus comes to earth, we celebrate this at Christmas, he's saying to us, you're playing this game wrong. Let me show you how to do it. He shows us the proper way to live life. It's characterized by giving, self-sacrifice, more than it is by taking and self-preservation. Try to contextualize this. Imagine that you are visiting a hospital in New York City. You can't find a parking spot close to the hospital, so you're forced to park a few blocks away. And now you're lost. You stop another driver to ask for directions, and he kindly says that he'll just park next to you, and he'll walk with you to where you need to go. Maybe a rarity in New York City. I don't know. Now, suppose that as you get to the front of the hospital, you find out that this man is actually the chief surgeon of the hospital. And as you near the doors, he says, oh, yes, and this is my parking spot. He had a superior advantage because of his status. However, in deference to your needs, he didn't take his rightful parking spot, but walk with you the whole way. So here is the question. As he was walking with you, did he stop being a doctor? No. Did he have a parking place? Yes. He had all these things, and at any time, he could have laid hold of those things and used them. But for your sake, he just chose not to in that particular moment. As thin as the metaphor is, it illustrates that Christ walking among human beings did not mean he was not God then why did he not reverse his tiredness or overcome all his physical limitations? 
It's because if he were to override his humanity, he would not have been fully in the form of a man and therefore could not fully empathize with our weakness or save us by his perfect life. See, the incarnation was not just an event in Bethlehem. The incarnation was the moment-by-moment choice of Christ to lay down his privileges, his rights as God, and to acquiesce to ungrateful sinners every second in order to affect our salvation. There will always be a part of us that is drawn to Jesus for bonum util reasons. What he offers is remarkable. What we get out of it is remarkable. But our interest in him better not remain there. It is a sign of growth when you're able to stare at Jesus' humanity and marvel. It's a sign of growth when you're able to stare at Jesus' deity and marvel. Austin Phelps put it well. He said, he writes of, of watching people at the Royal Gallery at Dresden, if you've ever been to a decent art museum, he writes, he writes of watching people sit for hours before a single masterpiece painting. He writes, weeks are spent every year in the study of that one work of Raphael, the Sistine Madonna. Lovers of art cannot enjoy it to the full till they have made it their own by prolonged communion with its matchless form. He tells of a conversation with one of the painting's admirers who said that he had spent years looking at the painting and yet found it possible over and over to discover some new beauty and new joy. How much more should we give this kind of patient attention to gazing, pondering, marveling at Christ? Phelps ends by saying, what painting could be anything like Jesus? Indeed, what painting could ever be like Jesus? He is our bonum formosum. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an immeasurable blessing it is to be able to know you through your son, who is the radiance of your glory and the exact representation of your being. Thank you for showing us your righteousness, your holiness, your goodness and love through Christ. And I pray that we would see more of your beauty, your majesty, your supremacy. And I pray that as we bask in it, as we marvel at it, as we stare at it, we would find our hearts continually captivated by what we see. And through this, Lord, I pray that you would graduate it, that you would stoke the embers of our worship into a raging fire that cannot be quenched. So what do we do? There's nothing left to do but to give Jesus all the glory, honor, and praise. And we do that now in his name. Amen.